0: Hello, welcome to the podcast on Consciousness with Bernard Bars, open-minded conversations on some new ideas about the scientific study of consciousness and the brain. I'm Nat Geld, this show's producer. We're here today with Bernie Bars, acclaimed author in psychobiology, including his newest book called On Consciousness, Science and Subjectivity, Updated Works on Global Workspace Theory. Bernie Bars is the originator of Global Workspace Theory, GWT, and Global Workspace Dynamics, a theory of human cognitive architecture, the cortex, and consciousness, and one of the founders of the modern science of consciousness. Hello, Bernie.
1: Hi there. I'm Ernak Bars, and this is Unconsciousness, and with me is David Edelman. So, uh, David, you're a biologist.
2: Yeah, I And guess a I neurobiologist. Yeah, yeah.
1: And a fiddle player. Yeah. And yeah. an anthropologist. Yeah. And did I miss anything?
2: No, I think you oh, pretty you're much... the
1: son of Gerald Edelman.
2: Well, that, there's that. That's yeah. right. That's, yeah. that's probably my major accomplishment at this point. Yeah, yeah.
1: and that took a lot of work. <laughs> right. uh, so, here's my question about the history of consciousness in biology. Darwin had a public advocate yes. who was called Darwin's... Bulldog. Bulldog, and bulldogs at that time in the 19th century were dangerous. Right, or they were thought to be dangerous. They're actually very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were used to fight bears. And they look quite different. And they look quite different from what? From the modern bulldog. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And so Thomas Henry Huxley, who Darwin's bulldog, got us all screwed up, I think. Mm. And the way he did that was to say uh, consciousness can't be a causal thing. Right, Because it's like the steam whistle of a locomotive. This is the mm. industrial age, right? Mm-hmm. And, and locomotives are, everybody thinks about locomotives. Mm-hmm. They may not know much about them, but they think about them. They're a huge symbol of power mm. and speed and all that. Right. And, and so Thomas Henry Huxley said that, well, you know, the steam whistle is kind of a side effect. Mm. of the locomotive. And maybe consciousness is like that. It's it's just you so, know, so sort of an epiphenomenon. It's a phenomenon. Phenomenon is Certainly. was the word that philosophers picked up from Huxley. Right. And ever since then uh, we've been really confused. Mm-hmm. And this happens in the history of ideas, doesn't it? It sure does. Uh, some idea gets planted, some metaphor gets planted and everybody gets all excited about it, and people who are a little scared of studying consciousness because, let's face it, it's a scary thing for people, and for very good reasons. I don't doubt that for a moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, So this is a kind of scary topic, and at that time, certainly, people would rather not know. And so the idea of it's a side effect, it really has nothing to do, with the steam vessel that drives the wheels. Right. And that's of course wrong. That's the wrong kind of physics, right? Because mm. there's conservation of energy mm. and the steam whistle takes off power and energy sure. from the steam vessel. There,
2: there are sort of these causal entailments that you can't ignore, they're there. There's exactly. no doubt. Exactly,
1: so the steam right. whistle is actually not an epiphenomenon, right. the steam whistle is part of the thermodynamics of, of steam. Right. As a major discovery of the time, and for trains, and for moving mm. people back and forth, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so, as a biologist, let's put on your biologist hat, mm. And how would you deal with that claim, that hypothesis, that consciousness is an epi-phenomenon?
2: So Huxley had this view that consciousness really wasn't causal. And um, I don't think that, I, I, I certainly don't agree with that, as, as at least as stated by him. I think it probably is causal but there is a problem and the problem is that again it's it's not directly doing something in the world it's mm-hmm. as, as as in it's not you know a motor neuron and it's not directly pulling in the world it's somewhere in the middle of all of that and mm-hmm. so i think to the extent that it affects what we do in the future it does have a sort of a causal role but it's a mm-hmm. It's a very strange terrain to try to negotiate, I think, and and my late dad, you know, had some issues with this. And in fact, he didn't really think it was directly causal. Mm. I mean, that's the way, at least, he framed it in in some of his his later work. Uh, but this is this is an ongoing issue. It's an ongoing debate, mm-hmm. um, and it does relate to the function of consciousness, of course, because if, if Huxley were right and it weren't and, and it isn't causal, mm-hmm. well then what possible co- function could it serve right and how could it possibly have been sort of under or the components of conscious processing have been under some sort of selection pressure or, or something you know it couldn't have evolved yeah in essence if it were insu- it, it, it would have been insulated from any kind of sort of pressure to evolve in a sense if it didn't have any sort of causal role mm-hmm. But I have an interesting take. I mean, it may not be interesting to you or other people, but my my take is that it's causal, but you have to think of consciousness as as sort of a more retrospective than anything else. Mm -hmm. But retrospective meaning that it is dealing with stuff that sort of just happened. In other words, the world is going on, and it's not as if consciousness is immediately simultaneous with that world. Mm -hmm that there's this little sort of delay, right? And we can intuit that there's a delay from the biology of the system, from the physiology of the system. In what respect? Well, in order, for example, in the case of vision, when light hits your photoreceptors, Mm -hmm. it has to, the the signal, the the resulting electrical and electrochemical signals that result, they start from your optic tract, they go into your lateral geniculate, and of course, Mm -hmm. they go into v1 and then ultimately certain things happen in higher visual areas to put to sort of reconstitute Mm -hmm. that frame that visual frame that takes Mm -hmm. time doesn't it i mean not much time right Mm -hmm. perhaps tens of milliseconds but that's still an amount of time it's not simultaneity right right Mm
1: -hmm.
2: so i mean what do you what do you think of that I
1: I think it's true, Mm -hmm. and obviously it depends upon the predictability of the input. So if we know exactly what's going to happen, we don't even have to bother being conscious of it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, our senses habituate. So the sensory input, if we actually stop the sensory input with respect to the the wiggle on the eyes, Mm -hmm. the conscious visual object fades. Right. So it stops being conscious if it's completely predictable. Yes. That's at least a, a, a plausible yeah. thought. And so consciousness one possibility, if you look at the opposite of that, is that consciousness is needed to process novel or important biologically important signals. Hmm. And and that's actually very traditional idea. That's not a new idea.
2: Right. So do you think that we can dovetail from that into the notion that that consciousness is sort of the ultimate sort of ramification of monitoring of a scene? An animal is monitoring a scene, looking for salience, looking for danger, any number of things. Well, danger as a subset of salience, Mm -hmm. something that's meaningful and acting on that meaningful signal in some way or or another. Mm -hmm. Or not, as the case may be, not acting on that signal to save its own skin if it needs to be quiet. But the monitoring of a scene mm-hmm. seems to be very important, right? It has a, a serious survival function, doesn't it? For sure, right? Yes,
1: right. So it's not just a little point here, a little point there. Exactly, it's making an interpretation of the whole.
2: Right, and once the world becomes a complex place, let's just imagine—you know, yeah. flash flash back to the the ancient Cambrian seas and just imagine sort of the earliest complex multicellular animals that have developed good eyes, yep. that even have some form of auditory, some very limited form of auditory processing, have mm-hmm. a good sense of chemosensation, something like smell, but underwater. Once the world gets pretty complicated and it's no longer just sort of rafts of low-lying plant life, whatever, uh-huh. it's sort of three-dimensional, right? And animals have started to move around in that world. right. That builds a complex scene, doesn't it? And it seems that there would be a certain amount of selection pressure, a certain amount of pressure on animals to evolve a means of evaluating things happening in that complex picture, in that complex scene.
1: Right. Right. One of the problems with the word memory is that it's everything, right? It's it's all the stable synapses that have grown based on our life experiences, mm-hmm. every single second. Mm-hmm. We get more synaptic connectivity and we get more synapses dying and, and being lost and being pruned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we get this constant adaptation, especially in the cortex, but not only in cortex, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's a fabulous thing because of this enormous cross-wiring of the connectome the collectivities of the, of the cortex and one little thing over here can ding another little thing over there and right. this happens in hundreds of milliseconds uh, right. probably. So what is it good for? Well, one of the things that it's good for is, is kind of associative clarification. You know, every word in, in natural language is ambiguous. Now, this is kind of hard to realize, but it's very easy to demonstrate. Mm-hmm. And you can look at a dictionary. Right. Just look at the multiple meanings. Right. Very simple words, very short, common words that sure. uh, two-year-olds understand pretty well. Uh, but two-year-olds, uh, when they hear the word bit, they might not think about the computer science <laughs> right. meaning of bit. But at some point, kids say, "It's probably started thinking that way. Sure. And ambiguity is not just for human beings. Mm-hmm. I think rabbits and snakes and Absolutely. all kinds of organisms have to resolve this very confusing world sure. that we live in. Yeah. Uh, and so it, that's one of the plausible functions right. uh, of, you know, reduction of uncertainty is, is a useful phrase. Yes, and,
2: and with, with, um, with further experience, of course, Things in the world become less ambiguous as, as you've more or less said, mm-hmm. uh, and this is sort of a variation on the theme that we we discussed earlier, mm-hmm. I think, with Jay Geed, which is the notion of uh, error correction, in a certain sense. It's sort of error correction played out over sort of longer stretches of time, mm-hmm. but you know you hone your dynamic representations of the world mm-hmm. in a certain sense and that's that of course that's very important for survival that is a sort of a somatic adaptation in our brains to the world
1: somatic in the sense that it, the, the, within real the lifet- cells yeah, the, yeah and it's within the lifetime
2: things. it's it's within moments of the animal's lifetime as opposed to you know it's not programmed in it's set by experience over long stretches over an entire lifetime uh-huh right right so Let's just assume, I mean, I think we're, we can be reasonably confident that consci- consciousness has some sort of functional role in the world, right? Or for us, for, for animals generally. Right. Uh, and so that actually allows for the possibility that we could somehow enhance it or fine-tune it in some way. Mm-hmm. And so how would we go about doing that? And what, what, what would that look like?
1: Where do you want to start?
2: <laughs> well, you know, there have been some interesting studies recently that have pointed to that very possibility. David Eagleman, for one, has studied synesthesia, and he, you know, he mounted that very, very large online study yes. of synesthesia, and he, and you know, went on from that and actually started to explore the possibility of introducing sort of otherwise artificial cross-modal processing of the world by putting, you know, putting together clothing that had sensors that would, you know, they would would give you feedback, you know, haptic feedback, like tapping in certain places. um, If you were, say, moving in a certain way or moving backwards, and it was almost like creating a new sense, sort of something like vision, based on, you know, almost based on sort of a sonar, but something like vision, sort of a visual space, but not within... Vision and, and a t- totally different feedback. Something coming through right. uh, touch, for example. Exactly. So the question is, would that would, would we derive any benefit from that? Because it's clear that we can do these kinds of things. Um, the brain is sufficiently plastic that even in a person who is you know otherwise normal, certainly doesn't naturally express the elements of synesthesia, and maybe. You should unpack synesthesia, so sort of what, what, what are we talking about when we're talking about synesthesia? Well,
1: I, I, I want to make sure this is right. So synesthesia, as I understand it, is, in a sense, a kind of halo of different sense modalities uh, when I read uh, black letters on a white background. Right. So it's, it becomes enriched. Perceptually, right. is, is right. that correct? I
2: think that's that. Yes, definitely. You're 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 moving right along the right track. Uh, an example would be graphing synesthesia, where it's almost people have described it as a, a case in which somehow the wires are crossed. And uh. I think that's sort of a weird way to put it, but the idea that when you mm-hmm. see a P, you see color. It's purple. When you read a P, when you read a P in a word, it appears as purple. So you get these sensoria that other people wouldn't get, mm-hmm. and it's almost as if sort of something is crossing in a, in a unique way. Right. And the question is, would that be an enhancement just to, to sort of create an artificial sense? Or you know, uh, there's another de- there's a device that somebody invented I think about twenty years ago, uh-huh. which was akin to artificial. It was sort of artificial sonar. It was sort of like a. a imposing a bat's sense of the world Uh on us. And Mm -hmm. it was a fairly simple device. Uh, It involved more or less a headset and sensors that would, you know, like radar that would be picking up, you know, sort of bouncing sound off the walls and then giving you a sonic feedback through earpieces or headphones Mm -hmm. of a particular tone. You know, if it was rising like, you were getting closer to okay. something in the world, if it was falling, boo, you were receding from that. I see. And people could wear these things, and purportedly right. within the space of, say, 15 or 20 minutes, oh. they could literally walk around blind in a room and negotiate obstacles with no problem whatsoever, but they were effectively blind. They weren't seeing anything. Right. They were just going by mm-hmm. the input from the spikes. Now, what can we do with that? Because clearly, it's playing with our perceptions, right? We're not playing with our perceptions, but it's modifying them in some way that's otherwise not normal for us. It's it's a fabulous
1: phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think sensory substitution is one of the labels that that was used for part of it, but it probably has more than one name. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the way I would tend to think about it is that uh, consciousness has a kind of pointing function Hmm. Uh, and so, baby and mother, right, and is crying, uh, that has a pointing fun, uh, function for the mother mm-hmm. because it's distressing, the right? And there's an empathic relationship there, and if it hurts for the baby, it also hurts in the insula of the mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then you get the mommy airplane, Thing, right, with twisting around and look, making eye contact with mommy and pointing upward at the same time and saying, airplane. Mommy, airplane! airplane. Mm-hmm. And this is a fabulously complicated thing, mm-hmm. right? Because there's all kinds of systems that are being engaged in a single coherent action. This right. kid is only two years older, whatever. Right. Right. So, uh, so that's dramatic and it's a pointing action. Right. Right.
2: Uh, so this would be sort of a further elaboration in a way. And I guess I guess the real question or the, the corollary question is, can we imagine a world or a particular situation in the world in which modifying our senses or creating sort of artificial sort of cross-modal, you know, sort of sensory attributes redounds to us some sort of an advantage?
1: Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it takes 15 minutes to acquire that cross-sensory skill, mm-hmm. there's a reasonable chance that we're kind of prepared right. to do this cross-modal integration. Right. And uh, one of the fabulous things that I've picked up fairly recently mm. is that all known languages, and of course those are either recent languages mm-hmm. or the languages that got written down mm-hmm. uh, maybe at most, 6,000 years ago by the Sumerians. Hmm. Uh, But written languages uh, and oral languages, they all have this pointing thing, uh, like there, that, me, you, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, us. Uh, All these are essentially pointing things, and then we even have a, a standard language, universal, where you refer to something you just mentioned before within the same discourse. Right. So, one of the great insights, I think, from linguistics is that there are no known languages that are simple. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the farther you go back, the more complicated they become. Right. Uh, so, we have to have some increased respect for the smarts. Mm. Of people who evolved these languages, you know, mm-hmm. as long ago as six thousand years. Mm-hmm. And it's this pointing function, but now it's become abstract. Right. And and we develop vocabularies, right? And we say e equals E equals M C squared. Mm. And holy gomoly, what suddenly happens is that the whole cosmos in some sense is summarized in this weird formula mm. so and that has a pointing function mm-hmm. right because now you start other
2: people start wondering what, what does this mean so in essence in considering how we might elaborate consciousness, how we might improve consciousness, we're sort of going back to the classics right we're sort of going back to the notion of this pointing function this fundamental function of, mm. of consciousness and that's yep. really interesting mm-hmm. one Other perhaps real world example, perhaps a little bit of a dark real world example is something that our mutual friend Mark Mitten has discussed with me at length many times, Mm. which is relevant, particularly for people who are in the warfighter, the warfighting industry. Oh, you know, we will not unpack that too much in terms of morality or ethics here, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. but uh, a kind of a, a, a method, a new methodology or a new instrumentation for tuning fighter pilots to their immediate environment at 20,000 feet if somebody is firing uh, an air-to-air missile at them. Mm -hmm. You can't really rely on, vision It's not gonna be fast enough interestingly enough, even vision in a heads-up display is not gonna be fast enough, so what do you do? You put uh, essentially sound sensors on the body of your plane and the skin of your plane, Mm -hmm. the plane can pick up the sound of the missile coming from the back, Mm. the pilot wears uh, a headset or a set of headphones that engage him with a 3D sonic world. And he basically, it's almost as if the plane becomes an extension of his awareness of the Mm -hmm. world, of Mm -hmm. his perception of the world in the auditory channel. And interestingly enough, pilots Mm. respond much quicker. And then again, it's three-dimensional. So when the missile's coming from behind, well, it's more subtle than that. It's coming, say, at a 30-degree angle. The pilot gets that in his headset, and he Mm. hears the direction of the missile, and he can make an evasive response much more quickly than if he relies on some, Mm. some sort of rear heads-up display that shows him from behind where the missile is, this is far better because it gives him a lot of resolved, highly resolved information, spatial information. That's interesting. And that, in a sense, is kind of, well, let's just say it's an enhancement of his perception, but in another sense, it's kind of an extension of his capacity, his conscious capacity, right? Mm -hmm. It sort of changes its interesting a new variety of a, a potential content of consciousness. Right.
1: The junction of hearing and vision. Is that? Yeah, well, it's really...
2: hearing and imagination, what do you think? It's, it's really, you know, just just mm. imagine yourself listening to a, a wonderful surround system. Say you're in a movie theater, yeah. and you're watching mm-hmm. the latest Star Wars movie, and the sound envelops you, right? Right. And you get the sense, you know, uh, there are, you know, people fire, you know, the... Fighting with, uh, sa- with, with lightsabers behind yes. you, right? And you hear it, and not you don't just hear it behind you. It's not so generalized. It's very specific. Right. You can hear, oh, they're are off thirty degrees to the to the right. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Now, I don't sit in a movie theater thinking about this stuff like this, but no, I, I should do that more often. <laughs> but but that's akin to the fighter pilot example because that's what they're hearing in sure. in these in these headsets. And that again, that tremendous is a is a tremendous improvement on their their capacity to detect threats and react quickly.
1: And and that goes to the ancient
2: idea that consciousness is for integration, right? Yes. So fundamentally, consciousness is an integrative function, and I think that's kind of a good way to, you know, good. to sort of wrap this particular aspect. Um, it's very very interesting stuff. That's good. Yeah.
1: Thank you, David. That was wonderful. Thank you, Bernie. It's a privilege. appreciate it. It's a privilege. And uh, this is Bernard Bars on Consciousness with David Edelman, who knows a lot about (laughs) consciousness.
2: Cheers. Thank you, Bernie.
0: To show our appreciation, we are offering our listeners a 50% discount for any edition of Bernie's book on Consciousness, Science, and Subjectivity, Updated Works on Global Workspace Theory. Just go to shop.thenautiluspress.com, spelled S-H-O-P dot T-H-E-N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot com, and be sure to enter the word books. B-O-O-K-S, in the coupon code box during checkout for that extra 50% savings. Of course, Bernie's books are available everywhere books are sold, although your 50% discount is only available in the Nautilus shop. If you'd like to discover more about the conscious brain and learn more about global workspace functions, please visit Bernie's new website at bernardbars.com. And I'm going to spell that also, B E R N A R D B A A R S. Dot .com and thank you for listening.